Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. Polychain Capital needs no introduction, but do you really know how the fund is structured? Did you know that Polychain Labs, their internal staking team, is amongst the largest non-foundation staking operators in the world with hundreds of millions of dollars in proof-of-stake systems? This week, Sherwin Dolat, Portfolio Manager at Polychain Capital, joins us to unstack his thoughts on the current market structure and why having a good grasp of this and network data is helpful to making short-term and long-term investments. He also explains why it is important to understand token supply structure and liquidity concentration when assessing trading decisions. I also asked Sherwin what Polychain's most successful bets have been to date. Tune in to find out about all this and more. And guys, if you've been enjoying these Crypto Unstacked podcasts, please hit the follow or subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, whichever platform you use. Thank you so much for those who have been tuning in week after week and sharing your thoughts on the episodes you liked. It really means a lot. As always, appreciate you tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Sherman, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Yep, thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you on the show, of course. Polychain Capital is really a mainstay in the crypto community. I don't think anyone tuning in doesn't know about Polychain, but for those who might be new to crypto and and tuning in for the first time, Polychain Capital was founded by Olaf Carlson Wee back in 2016, and the fund has invested in over 57 and probably counting investments and supports many of the really leading projects we see in the space today. Few probably know about the guy overseeing the hedge fund side of the business because there are are many arms within Polychain. So I definitely want to have you talk through that, Sherwin. Why don't we start off with you telling our audience a bit about yourself and then we'll dive into what you do at Polychain Capital. Yeah, sure. So I got into crypto probably in like mid 2012 or so. I was in college at the time and we we were mining with our gaming rig in our dorm. I kind of started poking around at it quite a bit. And I did some research in school, which was obviously no one really knew about it. It was tough to get sponsorship from professors because they compared it to like PayPal. (laughs) So it was was very different. And then from there, I I did pretty macro level research, but then also some pretty technical research in the math department. I I studied math. But then after that, because I had been looking into equity research and I worked for the first team, I think, that had put out really Wall Street sell side research on Bitcoin. And it was at a bank called Wedbush, which is in L.A., and I worked with Gil Luria, who was the analyst there, and it was looked kind of down upon, but he had put out really the first research on Bitcoin, and it was prior to the GBTC, the Grayscale launch. And so we had actually put out probably the first 
I think fundamental valuation model that I'd, I'd ever seen at the time. And that's what I'd spent my time working on, which was this MV equals PQ quantity through money valuation. Because back then there was really no real valuation to go by. It was pretty much just charts. There wasn't that much going on there. Um, it was pretty quiet. I also worked at Susquehanna, which is a large market maker in the US. And so I, I did some research there, um, primarily like event-driven type research in equities and equity derivatives um, within tech. And so from there, um, I went on and I did uh, a bit more independent research on crypto. And then kind of from there, I um, got in touch with the team here. And, and so I've, I've worked there since. And so how did you actually get connected to Polychain? This was what, 2018? Yep. What were you sort of tasked with initially? So they were, um, I think Olaf and Ryan at the time were, were on my like crypto research distribution list. And let me preface it with like the research back then that I did on crypto was way, way, uh, you know, junior compared to what's out there now. I'm, I'm really impressed with a lot of the independent research I've seen, but back then it was enough to impress them. So I brought a lot of, I think, analysis and visibility into a lot of the data. I studied network data pretty closely, um, even in college really early on when it was pretty limited data. There's no real coin metrics or anything back then, but a lot of uh, visibility into the data and understanding a lot of these networks from more of a market perspective, complementing a lot of the qualitative research with also this quantitative uh, research. And it's not so much price action, that kind of technical type stuff. It's more network data and just in general market structure. Um, and so that's what I've focused on while here. Now would be a great time to transition and focus on Polychain and how the fund is structured, because this will give us insight into kind of the things that you focus on on the hedge fund side of the business. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people aren't really that familiar with um, how we're set up. It's a really nice structure. It's, it's pretty holistic in my view. We basically have this hedge fund that people are familiar with that we invest in coins and things like this and, and liquid coins that are out there as well as illiquid coins like networks that are before they launch SAFs and things like that. But then also we have this venture fund, right, which is pretty early stage equity as well as coins and a lot of these crypto related startups. But then the really neat part is we also have not only Genesis, which is an incubator um, internally where we actually help companies kind of from scratch all the way through to launching their product, but then also labs. And labs is interesting because it's really kind of our technical boots on the ground, dealing with the actual code of the network, supporting them. So we do a lot of day one staking and support on networks. We're oftentimes the largest, you know, non-foundation staking operation on a lot of these networks like Tez and Dot and things like this. And it's a really unique team because I think that to really make the best investments we can, we need to kind of know it from all different angles. Market angle, obviously from our fundamental investment thesis around it um, and understanding the technicals about it, but then also understanding from actual code up. Um, and it's actually shaped a lot of the investments that we've made. So that's a, that's a pretty cool component. Yeah, and Olaf also mentioned um, during this podcast that you guys are amongst like the largest individual staking operations in the world, right? When it comes to participating in these proof of stake systems, he said mm -hmm. like upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars are invested in, in these systems. I was wondering if you can talk about from a high level, what on-chain governance looks like for those who might not be participating in DeFi or following this space actively. What does it mean to be a leader in, in terms of like the governance of these different protocols that we see today? Sure, yeah, uh, great question. So I think that when you kind of zone out and you look at, I'm gonna take this from a pretty macro perspective, but when you zone out and you look at how decisions are made globally within just different political structures, it's really not organized. 
it's never straightforward and you don't actually have much visibility or direct connection to it. So on these networks, it's really interesting because in crypto, you actually have a very direct way to vote on changes. So in a very basic sense, our team is locking this capital within the networks and risking that capital, right? And then also we're making these governance changes on the networks, whether it's just voting on different proposals or sometimes proposing our own changes. And people don't really know this, but we actually have a dedicated team that, that as well as our research team broadly, that actually focuses entirely on these proposals and um, a lot of the economic modeling that goes into different um, changes that can be made that also works with our labs team um, on the more technical parts, as I mentioned earlier. So at a very basic level, it's coming up with changes on the networks that will be voted on by different participants. And it's really in the best interest of the network. That is the main part is that we, uh, it's very transparent, right? When we take a stake in it, you, you kind of know what we have there. Um, and we want to do what's best for the network. And so that's always top of mind. You guys don't stake on behalf of others, right? So no one delegates to you guys in this sense? No. So um, there's a lot of pretty public uh, staking operations that do take outside capital. So ours is, it's pretty much all our own. Um, I've seen people like mistakenly delegate or, or very, very small amounts, but that's, it's, it's mostly our own capital. Yeah. And how do you keep up with all of the various proposals, right? Because there's hundreds of them yeah. going around. I mean, that's why there are these governance portals. One of them is called Boardroom. This one dashboard that you can go to, to kind of keep up with everything, right? So how do you guys manage to do that? So like I mentioned, we, we do have that team that's kind of dedicated to it, but also the way that we actually participate is very concentrated. It's not like we're staking on a bunch of different networks. We actually have a few and okay. we are, are pretty close to them. Um, that's a really good question because you have, you have a bunch of these networks that come out with different proposals and um, it can be quite a, quite a lot, but we have a, a small few that we focus heavily on. Mm -hmm. Got it. And, and one thing you mentioned earlier, right, is how various teams within Polychain work together with the labs team. I find that synergy very interesting because in order to support a network, you also have to invest in infrastructure around these yeah. networks, right? So how does either the investment side of the business or the hedge fund side of the business work together and interact with the labs team on a daily basis? Originally, it was kind of me. I love modeling. I love numbers. I was pretty heavy in that, which is kind of quantifying our opportunity costs there. Uh, how much capital to deploy, things like this. But now, like I said, we actually have a team that's a little bit more dedicated to that. But yeah, it's, it's really simple opportunity costs. And I think a lot of times people see, you know, staking and they don't really understand what it is. They think it's kind of like a dividend. It's really not, but it does take time. It does take different amounts of resources. It's a little bit different in mining because we've never really invested in a mining operation per se. Um, that's a little bit different because it's a little bit disconnected from the governance process, um, like proof of work mining on like Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or things like this. But within these networks, it's a bit of a different capital structure. And so we can actually deploy a bit more into it. And it depends on obviously what it is, right? But we've made it work and we, we have a pretty um, detailed process on how to allocate capital to that. Yeah. You focus on the hedge fund side of the business, looking after more of the liquid trading strategies. So I would love for you as, as a trader to share a bit more about kind of the overall market structure that you see today, because there's so many different components and then help us to refine why those parts of the market structure that you're looking at right now are important to the trading decisions that you make. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll preface it with saying that we're, we're really not that active in trading. I think there's a lot of funds out there who are, who are much, much more active. We take longer term approaches. Um, we're again, really not that active, but when we do trade, I think understanding the landscape is really important. And I think it goes with kind of what I did at SIG beforehand, which is I love markets because it kind of is this giant like puzzle, right? And you see the different way that the pieces are set up and it's kind of like this jumble. You have to understand how they're all working together. Um, and you're never going to fully understand, but you can try and get your best picture and they move all the time. And so when I look at the market, these are digital commodities, right? And so they, they function from supply and relative to, to demand. And it's a pretty young market too. Um, I guess just speaking on market structure broadly, when I first got into the space eight or so years ago, it was pretty much just one exchange with just spot Bitcoin trading, right? There's no margin, there's no nothing. Um, and so it was a little more straightforward, right? And kind of as it evolved, you had these new instruments like the perp swap in like 2016 or so that came out from BitMEX, right? And it introduced these different ways of betting on, um, on these spot prices. And it introduced kind of this concentration of liquidity. So I like to just understand supply and the, and the way that supply is set up and the different triggers and dependencies that it has. And so when you look at the market, I think March was a very interesting example where we had this deleveraging flush, right? Where you had these cascading liquidations, but it really resulted from concentration of liquidity. And we had markets sell off, which kind of triggered it, right? But the magnitude of it was pretty deep. And you basically had one exchange that had a way to bet on something that you really kind of didn't need to, you know, it was, it was, it ripples out onto these spot exchanges when you get these liquidations. And so any small move kind of can trigger a lot of these, this, this disruption in that whole process and adversely, you know, impact price, right? Where I'm connecting this all is that to understand why prices move in the way it does, it's like a bunch of different things that look at, right? Um, is kind of the cash bid, like the actual spot price leading the derivatives or, you know, you know, and you have a bunch that goes into that kind of stuff too. Um, but back then when you look at that, you know, you can understand the types of movements from kind of what's going on in the market and tracing back all the steps and concentration of liquidity broadly um, within the market structure of cryptos is pretty unique because it's just getting set up right after March, we saw pretty healthy dispersion of this liquidity ripple out to other exchanges. But before it was BitMEX with trading like 10 X the volume of its underlying spot exchanges that it gets its reference price from. And so that's a really interesting setup. So yeah, I think just broadly looking around there and yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And now with the proliferation of all these venues that you've been talking about, it's not just BitMEX anymore. There are a lot of competitor exchanges coming up on the derivative side and no less all the DEXs that have been popping up over the past, what, six to nine months, right? We didn't think they had a chance just a year ago. Um, if anything, there were just a, a handful, you know, Uniswap was in even, I think, the, the top at that time, right? But we've seen that kind of flip on its side where a lot of focus now is being paid to the competition that DEXs bring to the exchange space. Yep. So how, how do you think about changes in market structure when we incorporate the DeFi side of things? Yeah, totally. Well, it's interesting because I think at a very, very high level, what crypto has allowed for is kind of this new coordination of capital. And so in 2017, we saw these ICOs, right? And at a very like surface level interpretation, it was just, oh, you can send money to these people. But beyond that, it was really this new way for, for capital to just coordinate, right? And it was very, it was like the first iteration of it. And now, I mean, we're seeing this like tie that we have of software 
and money, which is crypto, basically, it's allowing markets to kind of like eat the world rather than previously that quote that's like software eats the world or whatever. It's like liquidity and markets are now going to, you know, kind of eating everything. And it's allowing capital to flow everywhere and without any bounds. What we've seen in DeFi is kind of like an extension of that, right? You've seen Uniswap volumes go up significantly, you know, passing up Coinbase and places like that. And it's because there are kind of less restrictions for people to make markets and trade what they want to trade as long as it can be listed on there. And it's just been exploding, kind of like just like bacteria, just growing everywhere. And that's just scrum demand that we've seen recently in space. So it's, it's to me, just the proliferation of liquidity and markets kind of eating everything and going everywhere. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to see kind of how that goes in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you guys don't trade very, very frequently, but... Nevertheless, I, I think it's important to have or, or think about your investments in different timeframes, right? Yep. Um, so for the more liquid strategies, shorter timeframes, perhaps, and then you know your, your longer term investments, of course, you build a more medium to long term thesis around those. So how, how does your understanding of the current market structure today influence the types of short term decisions that you're making that might impact the long term? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think most of our investments, they're all very, I mean, they're at the core, fundamentally driven, deep research, multi-year, but then also markets, you know, in the short term will respond different ways. Um, again, we're, we're not that active, but I think something interesting that I've learned is really to listen to the market and our markets move faster and change quicker, I think, than normal markets and the way that people interpret things and the way that money flows in and flows out um, really changes things. So I think there've been several times too, where you kind of have to stop and look at your positions and it's, it's so sentiment driven, driven by narratives, right? And so being able to reflect on looking at the market and saying, this is kind of the story. This is what the market is telling you about this and kind of understanding where you sit within that rather than making the market kind of work for you. But with our positions too, we, we weather quite a bit with them. They're deeply thought out. Again, we, we participate pretty heavily, but still you can't ignore these qualities of crypto. And so we're assessing them kind of all the time, right? We're following every single change in every network to kind of make sure, hey, you know, this is kind of where we're at and this is where everything else is at and, and positioning ourselves accordingly. So it's very interesting. It's, it's a unique market. Yeah. And as an extension of market structure, I think it might be also pretty cool to talk about these alternative community-driven fundraising models that we're seeing yep. as well. Sort of if you think about this as, as a long chain, this sort of is the, the beginning part of the chain, right? Where really projects are looking to new and innovative ways to fundraise for capital and, and to build a community from there. So can mm-hmm. you talk about the evolution of these models that we've been seeing? Yeah, um, it, it is very interesting. And it's actually something that Because when we're looking at this, we're going at a core level, what is it that crypto can kind of do that can't be done otherwise? And as I mentioned before, it's like the the coordination of this capital, right? And crypto introduces this way for like users of the system and participants to actually make it thrive, to actually kind of be owners. It's all a process, right? But initially we start out with, it's very one-dimensional. You have complete separation um, of corporations and these these participants and users. And now what crypto is kind of doing slowly is allowing people within the network to actually be rewarded and be connected to this network and all of its activities, right? And I think that, you know, in 2012 or whatever, if you would have, you know, 2011, you would have told people that this kind of stuff would be happening. Like, oh, you know, that's, that's just, that's way far out. But there will be a day where 
I mean, autonomously in real time, users like an Uber or something, the drivers or something are actually being paid in real time, just constant flow of liquidity somehow that actually ties these incentives. And, and by virtue of that governance, right, ruling and changing of the process that is in that whatever that, you know, that that structure is the, the corporation that you're in. But the corporations will not look the same as they do now, because when you understand how crypto works and you look at normal markets, you go, wow, these are complete. You're just all the incentives and behaviors are disconnected and you can thrive so much more if you just connect them and actually What's seemingly, oh, giving a little bit to people who are on the network, right? None of these corporations want to do that, but it breeds so much greater wealth in the long run, right? You want a smaller piece of that giant pie rather than having more of this smaller, tight, strong pie that can't really grow much more. Um, and so rewarding and tying together the users is like critical. That's, that's something crypto does that you can't get elsewhere. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but it's a, it's a pretty interesting, strong theme that I think wasn't there like a while back and it's just been growing and it's been strengthening. What's been some of these incentive models that's impressed you most? You have the advantage of being an investor as well, where like you say, you know, you are taking people through your perhaps Genesis program where you're helping to create these tokenomics. Mm -hmm. And so by working with these types of projects from the very, very beginning of the actual token design, like what is one or, or, or a few models that you think are really here to stay and will create really sustainable communities, which is the ultimate goal, right? Down the line, you don't want it to be the case where, you know, people come in just because there are these short-term incentives. And then once those incentives dry up, they leave, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, without giving any specific examples, I mean, it is really tying together the incentives, like I just mentioned in pretty creative ways, I think. And a lot of times they're with a much longer term approach so proceeds of the network rather than going to us or something it's actually going to go towards people who own some you know inherently a coin or something like that it actually operates through the network but i think allowing that kind of like dispersion of the ownership um if it's if it's crafted well through the activity and the generation of the ownership owning it it's also not going to do kind of what you mentioned right which is a short-term uh, ownership where you know you get something you dump it whatever but it's going to actually tie you in for the longer term. When owners and users of the network understand that it's actually some network effect that's forming there, the more it grows, the more valuable it becomes to new people. And then it actually just kind of thrives in that way and strikes that kind of that feedback loop. They're more inclined to actually remain and, and, and remain participating in the network. And we've done this with, uh, with a number of projects. What we've seen so far has been mostly within DeFi and, and market infrastructure type um, investments and networks. But who knows, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see what else comes down in the future. But those are, I think, really the core traits that will really help the networks remain strong at their core and, and align the incentives with the users. Hey, Unstackers, I wanted to let you know that Amber Group has just rolled out our new mobile app. The Amber app is designed to help you achieve optimal investment returns through market-leading interest rate products, yield enhancement, and risk management tools, all in one application. Right now, when you refer a friend, you can earn 30% of your friend's trading fees and 10% of your friend's interest earnings. Your friend will also earn 10% extra interest. Plus, new Amber app users are able to earn 16% APR on select Bitcoin and Ethereum time deposits. Invite your friends and start earning rewards together. Amber is your gateway to crypto finance.
Download the Amber app and select Apple and Android app stores today. Right, yeah, totally hear you there. And in valuing these tokens or, or in valuing a network, part of your process is looking to a set of metrics, whatever they might yeah. be, and, and data points, right? So what metrics do you look for to form your, your narrative on one, which tokens and, and projects to invest in, and also kind of the price movement of the yeah. projects that you are already invested in? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess kind of backing out, we've seen, I think from the start, as I mentioned before, you know, when I first got into the space, I was basically tasked with coming up with some real fundamental model for valuing these cryptocurrencies. And there really were none because I was pretty much tailoring to the institutional audience, which they didn't really know anything about the stuff. They actually want to model, not some regression of price or whatever. And so there's been a bunch of different methods. So as I mentioned before, quantity theory of money, MV equals PQ type stuff. Um, but then also we've seen as the actual different types of coins have come out, right? Because initially it was just Bitcoin um, and then Ethereum, these types of networks. But now we have coins that accrue value in different sorts of ways, like these, these burns and things like this, where you can assume some sort of the like proceeds are re returned to coin holders. And so you have traditional methods like discounted cash flow models and things like this. But at a very high level, you've largely seen bottom-up approaches like this um, which I think are very, very subjective and very difficult to base your analysis on because a lot of times, I mean, it's it's significantly biased. If you think about the arena that we're in, it's largely ret a retail audience. And the way that you value this bottom up, as I said, it's subjective, but also it doesn't necessarily mean it will translate to a change in price. I think what we'll actually see is coming from the other end, which is top-down, more comparable analysis, where we have different ratios that people have come up with, with which I think are pretty cool. Um, we've seen like value-locked ratios, right? Really, really early on, we had like network value to transactions. And of course, now as we get deeper, we find kind of the errors in these and we're refining them a little bit further. But I think what we'll see over time is that as our audience grows from retail towards, I think, uh, maybe more educated type audience or institutional, not even institutional, meaning, you know, larger money and bigger investors that come in, but just as our, our mental models evolve, we will, I think, compare them more to each other. And you'll actually see a tighter correlation between these comparable metrics. Like I mentioned, we have these like price to sales earnings multiple, or, you know, earnings multiples on these different DeFi protocols, things like this. I would never rely on one. I mostly try to look at them kind of from all these approaches. Um, also markets, as you've kind of seen, like I said, this is mostly retail. So a lot of them don't trade that way like they do in normal markets. Um, and even then they really don't trade a lot of times based on fundamentals. But I think that the maturity we've seen in valuation techniques um, is definitely something I've, I've kept a really close eye on. Our team, you know, it, it pretty much keeps up with pretty much everything. And we're constantly trying to assess, you know, how, how legitimate are these? How relevant are they really? Because a lot of times it can be just like I mentioned, very, very subjective to kind of make you, yourself feel good about this investment, right? But then you really need to look at it from a pretty holistic approach, which is actually uh, obviously looking at other components beyond that. But um, yeah, we've, we've seen a whole bunch of different takes from, like I said, network data, bottom up, these kind of burn type capital return type metrics. But initially it kind of started out with really what wasn't that much. Um, so I think in eight years, it's evolved quite a bit and I'm pretty excited um, 
to see kind of how it uh, continues. When we were prepping for this conversation, you had mentioned that you like to sort of triangulate some of these metrics. So if you were to give more or less a, a basic template for perhaps some of the beginner crypto analysts coming into the space, what would be like three metrics that you would use to triangulate basic stuff like price movement for mm. one of the major tokens, for example? Yeah, sure. Maybe they're not actually specific metrics, but I think something very relevant, as I kind of mentioned before too, for price movements is really just understanding supply structure and concentration of liquidity, understanding what coins are where and how able they are to simply move. And I think that when you look into our ecosystem too, a lot of times narratives kind of crowd these thoughts, right? Oh, so-and-so coin is great. It flips very fast because if there are coins that can move, this is a very, very emotional crowd that actually trades these and they will move. And a lot of times it will happen, you know, right in your face. And a lot of, look, I, I get a lot of this stuff wrong and, but it's, it's just very interesting to, to try and understand, as I mentioned, like these pieces of the puzzle and kind of where they are. It's not really a metric, but just liquidity broadly and understanding how able these parts are to move. It's going to be really hard to assess demand. A lot of times when these networks, what I'll look at too is at the very worst case, what is the amount that can actually move and dump out and kind of be your supply overhang? I can't determine demand, but I can try and understand that relative to any sort of baseline demand, right? And what we've seen actually is a really good example of that, which is these DeFi networks where, remember I mentioned like in 2017, you had all these ICOs, right? You had a bunch of the supply overhang. There was really no balance to it. It was kind of just unruly kind of everywhere. And now we've actually had pretty intricate designs that feed on illiquidity and really just a dry market structure for the supply. We've seen some of these networks with 80, 90% of the supply being staked. So if you have any incremental demand coming in, um, it will really impact the price uh, you know, in a, in a pretty positive way. So I think at a very, very base case, understanding where every bit of the supply is and what it is bound to. That is like the number one thing I can say about um, market structure. And it's very fascinating. And Great, great. So let's zoom out now, you know, extending our conversation here about markets and talk about that side of the polychain business, right? Which you and, and Olaf look after. So what macro trends are you focusing your time on understanding right now? Sure. Um, when I think about the macro, it's obviously... Super macro is obviously looking at traditional market, you know, tr traditional asset classes, right? Uh, equities, debt, rates broadly, um, metals, stuff like that, and currencies. But then understanding how those translate to crypto, because what we're doing is, is managing um, this, this fund of these coins, which is like Bitcoin and, and other things. And so then within their own kind of at a more micro level within our own ecosystem, how those all relate to Bitcoin, which kind of connects to the outer markets and understanding where we are in these different cycles. Again, we're not trying to time different things, right? But I think that when you look at the market and how it responds to certain things, I think the market has a big tendency to, as I mentioned before, it's very narrative driven, right? And it's very short term driven. So you'll see people get turned on and very off very, very quickly on different trends that I think can be perceived as short-term. Like I mentioned, ICOs and things like this, people taking it at face value. But when you actually stretch it across a very long time horizon, um, which is what, kind of what we're looking at, you can get really good deals on things when they're low and kind of in the off trend, right? As long as you have this kind of patience to understand what will really last 
and what actually is building some sort of a moat within crypto and that you actually just broadly can't get elsewhere. Um, and it's been this theme of this capital coordination that I've mentioned. So you could have shrugged off these ICOs. You actually could have got some uh, back then that were, you know, maybe good for now. Maybe most got washed out. Um, and it will be the same through these different trends, right? These, this over-exaggeration of price and undershooting of, of price. But I think broadly, understanding the counter of each of those trends when everybody is feeling emotional and, you know, panic selling and this and that, you know, there can be some good things on your on your shopping list or whatever that you can that can find out there that will continue that theme that is largely unchanged. Um, if you know, like I mentioned, the market is very short term uh, focused um, and it's magnified by these emotions. But I think longer term, as long as you kind of have that theme intact, you kind of cipher through it and and um, and remain with that thesis that you have initially. And do you find yourself debating? other members within your investment team about what these trends are and whether they're actually here to stay and sustainable or, or whether it's just, you know, a characteristic of a certain period of time, right, within the market because of certain things happening. Do you, do you find yourself in these situations? Yeah, and actually it's, it's very interesting because I, I probably do a lot less talking. Hopefully our team is not, you know, some of them are probably disagreeing. No, I'm just kidding. We have really deep technical knowledge of a lot of these networks. I'm really lucky in that I have a bunch of really, really intelligent and really creative thoughts around me with, with the team. So we kind of bounce, bounce stuff around and draw pretty interesting insights. And I think the most unique trait, the one that I appreciate the most probably for most um, of the team is that we're pretty honest with a lot of these things. I think a lot of times people come into the space and they go, which one will win? Like, like what's the platform that will win? And it's like, I think if you're honest to yourself, you're going to know. We're not going to really know. You got to pick your kind of bets wisely. You're never really going to know. And, and things will pivot and change. And you will also be wrong at times. I try to dial in this like emotional aspect of it because we talk about like fundamental research and analysis, right? And we talk about technical analysis and, and price and things like this. But I think something really valuable to zone in on is like emotional um, understanding like of yourself when you're, when you're observing these things. And I think something that I've learned from our team especially is like we've been wrong at times. Uh, we've been just like dead wrong on certain things, but the ability to listen to the market, listen to actually really your own research and understand, I think the contrarian view is the best of anything, right? Prove me wrong. Like right. I have this view, I've done my diligence, but also just like, if you really propose something better that makes more sense, you don't really have an ego on this. And I, I'm like working on this every day. And of course my, my technical views on, on the different networks are way, way, you know, at a way lower level than the rest of the team, but I have them to kind of draw upon really valuable resources. And like, I think that emotional side is something I don't really, I don't really hear being, being talked about much, but it's very emotional, right? Do you want to actually, there's this funny quote from Dan from CMS Holdings, which said something like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to make money? And I like keep that in my mind all the time because it's like your ego wants to just be right, but you got to be able to pivot. Um, and so, yeah, we, we definitely debate things and are constantly challenging these views, right? And actually going back on our original thesis and different different investments we picked there and going, where did this kind of go wrong? Mm -hmm. um, because you're going to be right at times, but you're not always going to be right. And understanding kind of where you went wrong, then you can like transition that to the future when you actually look at different things. These are very vague responses, but I think that taking time to really zone in and understand how you're thinking about these things and removing that kind of ego and the desire to be simply right is pretty important. What's one thing that you guys feel like you've been very right 
about, and this could be a trend, you know, this could be an outcome of, in terms of like how you thought the market was going to develop, anything like that, where you feel like Polychain has been very right about and, and is sort of proud of that. I think one that's pretty interesting from pretty early on was actually DeFi. Just broadly DeFi, but like, I remember when that term wasn't really a term and like Olaf pretty much uh, coined that term and like, we didn't expect it. I think our team will tell you they actually didn't expect it to the magnitude, but like broadly that direction, it was heavily like looked down upon. Like I remember when it was IDEX and like Ether Delta and like these initial iterations of it, right? Um, and obviously, sorry, I don't mean as not like IDEX has, has evolved since then and things like that, but the initial iterations of this, that was kind of the one dimensional view, but really looking beyond that and going, what can this actually be? How can capital flow? And then how, what new behaviors will kind of come from this? I think that was a pretty cool trend that we were pretty deep in um, and thinking about. And like I mentioned, the team's pretty creative. So being like ahead of the trend, like we kind of like, you know, a lot of people, just, you know, we hang out and like just talk about pretty far out views. Again, less so me. I'm mostly there to just draw upon the insights and all that and just list, listen more than I speak. But like very creative views because this space just moves so fast, right? And you get these viral behaviors and it pushes these things in direction that you just never really would have thought. You know, you won't really know the magnitude of it because people will go, oh, well, like DeFi value locked like 2.75x next year or like 2.77x. It's like, that's not the point. It's like yeah. just broadly the direction that like behaviors will move and like how this will kind of get there. I think DeFi was one that that really spurred actually just recently, but again, before it, it was a very different space. And then same with uh, on-chain governance, actually, right? Like staking, the first iterations of staking way back, like master nodes and stuff like that, again, face value, very, very crude, poorly done. If you, if you shrugged off the idea, you kind of missed it, right? Because it's not like just one of them doing it poorly will result in all of staking and on-chain governance and really what it deep down means right. failing. It's just a first iteration. And now we've seen it completely evolve, right? And so, yeah, I, th I think actually just, just DeFi broadly and then governance within that, um, those are pretty pretty big trends, I think, that um, we, we've supported pretty, pretty heavily. Great. Well, Sherwin, as we wrap up here, I, I did want to ask, you know, do you have any takeaways from your time um, at Polychain so far, you know, being in this space for as, as long as you have, um, you know, do you have any takeaways for our audience in terms of, you know, what to look out for on the investment side, you know, looking out perhaps just the end of the year, so shorter time frame because yeah. things change very quickly, things, things we should be aware of market-wise? Yeah, um, I think it matters also about your time frame because a lot of people come in and go, what's good to buy? It's like, well, are you looking at, you know, till tomorrow? Are you looking at six months? Are you looking at like 10 years? So it's it's a little bit tough to say based on kind of the time frame, but I will tell you a lot of what's going on, it is it is of higher quality than I think people perceive. Another very shallow trend, and I'm not projecting the time frame right, but just I'm looking at quality relative to short-term emotions and how they're being valued. What's going on in DeFi currently, it's much more intricately designed. It's much more thought out. Distribution and ownership of the networks is much more uh, spread out. Um, you're seeing way higher quality of projects than you saw three, four years ago. Um, and so keeping that in mind, when you look out 
it's important to see which of these projects are kind of tagging on to, you know, the trend or whatever and inserting buzzwords and this and that, right? And, and kind of who's actually allowing them to thrive, right? Um, the, the users, you know, and then which ones are actually breeding behaviors that are actually pretty sticky and doing things that have a relative moat in the space. And I think the moat is difficult to define because I think that pretty intelligent um, uh, people in our space have brought up concerns of can't you fork one of these, you know, and, and, and we've actually seen that recently. Um, and that's why it makes it more exciting, right? Um, really going into deep thought of how these things can be done, but understanding which ones just broadly have higher quality. Um, it will be, you know, probably pretty interesting to see how they play out because there will always be ones that have far higher quality and there will be a, a bunch or probably most that kind of fizzle out, right? Um, but really zoning in and understanding not just the network data or the price action or anything like that, but really how is everything um, uh, incentivized and aligned um, and kind of what is the user base and things like this and kind of what be behaviors is it breed? Because as we saw, DeFi picked up because you had some of these linked, these behaviors linked and the incentives linked really, really nicely. Um, and so now it's, you know, pulling back a little bit, whatever, but on a longer term horizon, there are some actually very interesting projects being built out there um, that I think will last. Excellent. Well, Sharon, I really learned a lot during our short conversation today and, and would love for our audience to connect with you besides Twitter, where you're at Real Sherwin D. Is there another way that folks can uh, connect with you to follow your work? I'm not that active on there. Maybe just Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Sharon, it was a pleasure having you on the show and look forward to catching Thanks, up Emily. again with you very soon. Thank you so much. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Also check out our Crypto Unstacked YouTube channel. I'll provide details in the show notes. Until next time, take care, Unstackers, and see you at the next episode.